Hey everybody, Corey here. Before this episode of Penknife begins, we'd plan to hit you up with one of those shameless requests for money. And while we'd be very grateful to anyone who wants to contribute to our Patreon, our main need right now is for you listeners to help us promote Penknife. The best way you can do that would be to press pause right now and go and rate us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. Likewise, it'd be great if you could follow us and share a Penknife post on your social media. And most importantly, tell your friends. Okay, enough begging. Without further ado, here's the episode. Okay, we're playing the name game. I'm thinking of an American politician who first made his name outside politics. Ronald Reagan. No, not Reagan. Listen to the clues first. Here goes. Tough guy. Jesse the Body Ventura. No, no, no. Megalomaniac. Schwarzenegger? Good guess, but no. Volatile and prone to delusions of grandeur. Ah, Kanye West. Ah, getting closer. Bad hair with a need to dominate, masking deep insecurity. Man, this game is lame. Everybody's sick and tired of hearing about Trump. No, 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 not Trump. But maybe not so far off. I'm thinking of one Norman Kingsley Mailer. And in noting his venture into politics, I'm not just referring to the 1960 mayoral bid that ended the night it began due to his placement of a certain penknife. No. I'm mainly referring to his second run at the mayor's office nine years later. By decade's end, it was clear that Mailer's days as an author of experimental film were numbered. But so what if the movies were flops? Armies of the Night and its follow-up, about the 68 Republican and Democrat national conventions, called Miami and the Siege of Chicago, were both big hits. People couldn't seem to get enough of Mailer and his politics, So in 1969, with Jimmy Breslin as his running mate and Gloria Steinem as one of his campaign's main organizers, he decided it was time to give the people what he was sure they really wanted. Hey, how are you? You running for mayor? I'm running for mayor. Never one to shy away from confrontation or the F-bomb, Mailer was a maverick campaigner while Sarah Palin was still in diapers. Running on his oxymoronic and plain old moronic left conservative platform, he promised to make New York City the 51st state, hold a yearly stickball World Series, allow access to free bikes and city parks and have a car-free, electricity-free Sunday every month. By far, his best idea, which should really be implemented by the next mayor of New York if they truly support Black Lives Matter, was to require all cops to live in the neighborhoods they patrolled. Alas, I guess Mailer just wasn't as charismatic or compelling as Trump, Schwarzenegger or Jesse the Body Ventura, because his campaign completely bombed. He finished second to last in the Democratic primary, and mercifully, that was that for Norman Mailer as a political candidate. When looking back on Mailer's doomed bid, it's interesting to consider his campaign in relation to his leftist conservative tag. Most of the campaign promises definitely fall on the left, especially that stickball World Series idea. Leftists just love stickball. So where does the conservative bit come in? Well, listeners, in this episode, you're going to hear about one aspect of Mailer's politics that would definitely qualify as conservative, though Neanderthal or barbaric might be better words for it. And while Jerzy Kaczynski was still more or less avoiding politics at this stage, we'll hear how his actions in his personal life more or less aligned him with the shit Mailer was espousing. 
And what early 70s political issue could we be hinting at here? Yep, women's liberation. It's time to address head-on how truly vile these guys were. My name is Corey Eastwood, and I'm a bookseller, failing writer, and guy who wants to be a feminist ally, but fucking hates it when straight men call themselves allies just to get laid. And I'm Santiago Lemoyne, a bookseller, failing writer, and I'm not a feminist in the same way that Jessa Crispin is not a feminist. Which, if you haven't read her book, and you really should, means I guess I'm kind of a feminist. This is Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. And this is one of those episodes we warned you about in the beginning that deserves a special disclaimer. There's going to be some sexual violence and horrific misogyny in here. If you're sensitive to or triggered by this kind of content, we suggest you skip this episode. Chris moved up here three years ago when she was 28 and Denise was 30. The idea was that they were going to settle down, leave the nightlife and the havoc it wreaked on their days behind them. In their brownstone garden apartment on a rundown block of West 77th, Chris had no problem quieting down. Weekend mornings with the radio set to QXR, sunlight filling the kitchen, bagels and locks, big pot of coffee in the Sunday New York Times. The fantasy of grown-up life realized. Chris could get used to it. Sadly, Denise couldn't. There was just as much dope uptown as there was in Alphabet City, and within two months, Chris had thrown her out. By month three, she'd had to change the locks to keep her from entering, stealing their rent money and the TV she'd already replaced twice. There's been plenty of others since Denise, but not a single one compares. The memory of her smell, her voice, that look she'd give when Chris knew she was going to use again, her thick eyebrows, bowing into each other slightly, defiant and desperate at the same time. In many a lonely, or worse, not so lonely night since Denise had gone, Chris would have given anything to see that look again. Steal from me, use me, lie to me, I don't care if you choose drugs over me, just look at me like you used to. Tonight Chris got the look she'd been dreaming of, and it's gutted her. She'd gotten off work late. Planned to pop into Ronnie's Roost on 75th to have one drink and then go home and fall asleep in front of the TV. But upon entering, she'd seen Denise, or perhaps her ghost, sitting at the bar. Her face was full again. She looked clean. Chris considered fleeing, but before she could, their eyes met. Only a moment, but a moment that couldn't be undone. A moment that stained and spread and left her reeling as she turned around and went back outside to catch her breath. She'd been out here for how long now? Trying to calm herself down, debating whether or not to go inside. And now, a guy? Seriously? This fucking creep is going to try and hit on me now? As soon as he opens his mouth, she recognizes him. She doesn't let on that she knows who he is, and instead of asking her if she's read his books, he says, Maybe you recognize me from TV. And when she says no, he emphasizes his celebrity as if that somehow guarantees that he won't be a creep. I mean, look at this guy. 
If you were a fucking monk in a monastery, you could still tell from a mile away that he was a world-class pervert. Any other night, she'd tell him where to shove it. Tonight, though, having already been brought to her knees, part of her wants to get lower. Apparently, he needs to bring a woman in order to enter the sex club down the block. Sure thing, Daddy. Let's go. Plato's Retreat. Years ago, she'd been to its previous incarnation, a gay bathhouse called the Continental. The night she went, Bette Midler and Barry Manilow put on a pretty decent show next to a pool with elaborate fountains and a massive disco dance floor. Cool, for sure, but there were way too many straight people there. Them and the celebs and the tourists ended up killing the place, and last year it reopened as a swingers club that catered to bridge and tunnel types. In other words, lots of saggy white flesh. Oh boy. Here we go. In the foyer, there's a grotesque, hairy blob of a man holding a woman whose legs are wrapped around his doughy neck. Her face is planted on his prick while he eats her out in an incredibly disturbing way, as if he's actually eating, gorging himself on her flesh. There's something childlike in his tubby, Don DeLuise-esque face that chills her. If lower was her desire, lower is most definitely where she's going as she notices her dates start disrobing. Clothes, they, they are frowned upon here. Want to join me? He takes off his shirt, exposing a hairy chest as orange as his face. He looks like a fucking Oompa Loompa. Even his palms are tan. Disgust wells up in her chest and her look says enough. Okay, okay. Later, perhaps. Let me show you around. He leads her to the swimming pool, which is brimming with the kind of pale flab she'd been expecting. There's an old guy on the deck, his legs dangling in the water, and... Oh, come on, really? A perfectly fine-looking woman standing there in the shallow end, tossing his salad. Jersey sees it too and makes a point of stopping. <laughs> well, uh, at least she has the chlorine to wash it down. She doesn't smile, no more containing her disgust. This seems to stimulate the little troll as his creepy smile just gets bigger. Are you hungry? They have a nice uh, buffet, if uh, salad is not your thing. Again, no smile and no way in hell is she touching that filthy buffet. A tray of crusty spaghetti and another of coagulated mushrooms and chicken livers. Now he's leading her into the mattress room. Countless mattresses piled up on the floor with at least two people on each one going at it. Maybe 75 bodies in total. It's a Boschian hellscape with matching smells and a soundtrack. The fucker is nodding, pointing his massive schnoz toward an empty mattress that's clearly sopping wet. She gives him her best death stare, but he just nods undeterred. Persistent little bastard. No problem. I think I know a place you might like. Ah, the orgy room. Of course, Jersey, this is the one she's been waiting for all along. Seeing that flesh sculpture in the corner, that rapey gangbang over there, and the circle jerk by the door, yeah, this is what really turns her on. He tries to take her hand, and yeah, that's enough. She wraps both hands around his neck and pushes him up against the wall. Ah, so you, you like the rough stuff. Chris leans in, smiling. This asshole, 
This nightmare of a scene was really the perfect cure for Denise. She's going to need a steel bristled brush to scrub this place out of her mind. That's right, baby. She squeezes the fucker harder so that his orange face begins to shade red. I like it rough, but you're not my type. What a shame. She squeezes as hard as she can, and then lets go and walks away. She hears him gasping for air as somebody howls in orgasm. Jersey and Kiki Kaczynski were together from 1966 until his death in 1991. Well, as far as I know, she didn't have other lovers during those years. Jersey went out most nights, cruising New York City for sex. He took to sleeping in two shifts, from 4 to 8 p.m. and then again after his nocturnal ramblings from 4 to 8 a.m. Kiki was obviously somewhat aware of what he was doing, but preferred to turn a blind eye to it. She justified it as his, quote, necessary release. In his early years in New York, that release most often took the form of soliciting prostitutes. In the 70s, his tastes in prostitutes began to veer towards trans women, and at one point he claimed to have the world's largest photograph collection of trans women's genitals, prompting the New York Post to run an article on him, with which they printed a photo of his mug, and beneath it the label, Kaczynski. Transsexual expert. But by the end of the 70s, Jersey had begun to take his business away from street pickups and into sex clubs. His club of choice was a place called Plato's Retreat on the Upper West Side, New York's first mostly hetero sex club. There, he'd lurk night after night, sometimes indulging in the action, often just posting up in the orgy room for hours at a time to watch and occasionally give stage directions. Here's Kaczynski discussing it on Letterman in 1982. I show up and I look. I just walk around and I look. I keep watching. Remember being there, I like to watch. I love to watch. I'm all over the place. Now you only go there to watch. (laughs) I go there to write. Uh, Where do you keep your pencil? Now, before that dirty part of you gets jealous of Jersey for getting to spend every night in the orgy room, please note that Plato's Retreat was not a fabulous place full of hot young things like some of its homosexual bathhouse counterparts. As we just heard, there was a lot of beer-bellied, chicken-legged suburban types. In any case, it was still sad when that club and the others he visited closed in the mid-80s due to the AIDS epidemic. Without sex clubs, Jersey was forced to go back to roaming the streets in search of prostitutes. In 1970, Kate Millett published a book called Sexual Politics. Groundbreaking, game-changing, consciousness-shifting, call it what you will. The New York Times called it, quote, the Bible of women's liberation. And while Millet's Bible is far too nuanced to label any single man as Lucifer, one of the book's main candidates for that title would definitely be, yes, him again, our friend Norman. Why? Ah, as if you really need to ask. But let's pretend you did, and I'll give you a little recap of the way he treated women to this point in his life. He repeatedly cheated on all of his wives, 
thus causing the collapse of a few of his marriages. The women that didn't divorce him because of his infidelities were usually fed up with his assumption that they would drop their careers to look after him and his ever-expanding family. And Adele, his second wife, well, you know what he did to her. Yeah, you know about the stabbing and near murder, but apparently J. Michael Lennon, Melo's buddy, literary executor, and the guy who wrote the 950-page biography I kinda wish I hadn't read, did not. In an interview, he was actually quoted as saying, Mailer was never accused of hurting any women. Well, there was that little thing with Adele, plus the fact that he hit numerous women and was accused of viciously beating his fourth wife, Beverly Bentley. But no, J. Michael, Norman never hurt any women. In his writing, women didn't fare much better. In his preposterous essay, Quick Evaluations on the Talent in the Room, Mailer wrote, I can only say that the sniffs I get from the ink of women are always fey, old hat, quaintsy goisy, tiny, too dykely psychotic, crippled, creepish, fashionable, frigid, out of baroque, macaye and mannequins whimsy, or else bright and stillborn. Before concluding, a good novelist can do without everything but the remnant of his balls. Mailer could not imagine a woman writing anything worth reading because he believed their life experience was, well, limited and boring. In his words, I doubt if there will be a really exciting woman writer until the first whore becomes a call girl and tells her tale. Ouch. Millet devoted 25 pages of her book to characterizing Mailer as the archetypal chauvinist pig. Pig is my word, but Mailer preferred beast. In a 1970 interview with Orson Welles, Mailer infamously declared, Women are sloppy beasts. They should be kept in cages. Kiki's not the only one Jersey treated like shit. He's known to have beaten several girlfriends. And with many others, he played the kind of sick, manipulative games he wrote about in his books. From restricting their calorie intake, a common tactic used by cult leaders and controlling boyfriends alike, to spying on them, Jersey's creepy ways had serious real-life consequences. During one of his most important and lasting relationships with a woman named Jean Kilborn, he stole her diary and used some of its most intimate details, more or less verbatim, in his novel, The Devil Tree. And like Mailer, in Jersey's fictional accounts of violence towards women, you often get the sense that the stories had bases in reality. To my mind, the most disturbing scene in any Kaczynski novel is in Blind Date, when his stand-in, then a teenager, stalks and violently rapes a classmate. He gets the idea from a friend who shows him a technique for subduing victims in a way that blinds them from seeing their assailant's face. He calls these assaults, quote, blind dates. The Kaczynski character then meticulously plans and carries out his own blind date and describes it in page after page of excruciating detail. This scene definitely crossed a line for me. It felt too real, as if it were one of those bits he took directly from his life. Then I came across an interview he did in 1977 on the Today Show with Tom Brokaw where, when asked about this scene, he said, 
And I'm going to read this quote to you so you don't have to hear Santi's goofy Borat voice as there's nothing at all goofy about his response. He said, Here is an example from my generation after the war. A rape was a very common experience in Poland, the Soviet Union, and Central Europe. We had been raped by war, so an act of individual rape was mild. I hate to say it, but most of us at school specialized in one form of rape or another because, in contrast to what our parents did with bombers, gas, concentration camps, and so forth, it was a game. It was a sport. We were neutralized to this particular form of violence by a far greater violence, the staggering violence of the war itself. Do you feel great shame? Brokaw then asked him. No, he replied. But I appreciate the violence. I know it now. I know it quite well. No one delighted in being publicly criticized as much as Norman Mailer, and he presumably couldn't have been happier to be one of Millet's main targets. Instead of getting to work on his big novel, it was a perfect excuse to do what Norman Mailer did best, troll. This particular trolling effort resulted in a 47,000-word diatribe, first published in Harper's in 1971, called The Prisoner of Sex. It's quintessential Mailer. Written in the third person and referring to himself as the prisoner, he mocks Millet, who he refers to as Kate or Kate Baby, as if they were pals, and belittles both her prose and her ideas. Even if you try to remain impartial and set the content aside, the tone is so infuriatingly condescending that it's an incredibly difficult task not to hate Mailer from page one. Luckily, Mailer's beliefs more than justify that position. Essentially, he presents a biological determinist argument that claims that feminism threatens the innate, natural, and therefore good differences between the sexes, and that any use of technology in regards to sex and sexual reproduction is wrong because it's unnatural. He claims that male virility is a highly important life-giving force and that repressing it through, say, condoms or the pill, is a totalitarian act, a crime against humanity that will cause, yet again, metaphorical and maybe even actual cancer. In this vein, he fears the clitoral orgasm because a. it makes the penis superfluous, and b. it deprives a man and a woman of the, quote, transcendental instant of the good old-fashioned vaginal orgasm. Likewise, masturbation and abortion are ontologically wrong because they waste good seeds, and male homosexuality is basically what men do when they don't succeed with women, i.e. when they can't fulfill their natural biological drive. If only he ran for mayor again. I can just picture his campaign slogan. Norman Mailer, not just a stickballing misogynist, but a homophobe anti-choicer too. Okay, okay, Mailer would headbutt me for calling him that, claim it's reductive and taken out of context. But the facts are the facts. He was prolific at spouting misogynistic views, and even if he wasn't pro-life in the fetus and baby Jesus Christian right sense of the term, he was still against abortion 
because of his convoluted anti-technology stance. The homophobia charge is also indisputable, albeit muddier. As I've mentioned before, many claim that Mailer himself was bisexual. Yep, the toughest, straightest men in the history of heterosexuality liked gay porn and had a thing for sleeping with gay men, as long as a woman was present, that is. He hid this side of him from public life, but it's not such a stretch to see how Mailer's conflicted and repressed views about his own sexuality might have resulted in his fear of gays. Anyhow, back to the prisoner of sex. Once again, everyone's favorite writer, Joan Didion, thought Mailer was, quote, exactly right. Feminists, though, were not so riveted. If before the prisoner of sex, Mailer shared the title of misogynist male writer number one with D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller, afterwards, those two were left eating his dust. Norman Mailer was now the undisputed archenemy of feminism. Jersey once saw a woman he found attractive in the waiting room of a doctor's office. He badgered the secretary to give him her name, Joy Weiss, then called all the Jay Weisses in the phone book until he found her and managed to convince her to go on a date. She was a fan of his work and agreed to join him for dinner at a restaurant where, according to Sloan's book, quote, she noticed that the waiters and waitresses fixed him with cold stares. You see these people here, he told her. They all have dreams of succeeding. I have contacts in Hollywood. Pointing to a waitress, he told Weiss of his contempt for women who wanted success, but not badly enough. I told them if they slept with me, I could introduce them to people. They deserve my contempt because they aren't willing to do everything. Their second date was to an S&M club, where they both just watched. And on their third date, Jersey told Weiss he had something important to tell her, about an incident so horrific he'd had to leave it out of the painted bird. He then embarked upon a particularly gruesome story of torture that ended in his castration. Therefore, he told her, he could no longer have sex and was only able to derive erotic enjoyment from pleasuring women in the ways he still could. Later, in his apartment, when they were making out, Jersey abruptly yanked down his pants, revealing a very much intact and fully erect penis. Weiss called what happened next near rape. This is just one of hundreds, if not thousands, of similar relationships Jersey had with women, and it's chock full of absolutely horrific behavior. Until I read the Brokaw interview, which for some reason is not mentioned by a single one of the hundreds of articles I've read on Kaczynski, and the story of his feigned castration, which is buried towards the end of his biography and glossed over, I'd mostly liked Kaczynski. In my mind, he was a sleazy yet lovable creep who looked like an Oompa Loompa and had a thing for toothbrushes. But when you read these stories, there's no longer any debate. Kaczynski left real victims, and not just when he was a teenager, but well into adulthood, throughout his life. Jersey Kaczynski was many things, and one of them was a violent rapist. Step 
wired up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Theater of Ideas. Tonight, we give you the fight of the century, the battle of the sexes. In this corner, four of the loudest voices in women's lib. First, all the way from down under, the saucy feminist that even men like, the female eunuch, Germaine Bria. To her right, both politically and on stage, we have the president of New York's chapter of the National Organization for Women, Jacqueline Ceballos. Next, we have the heavyweight of American literary criticism, Diane Trilling. And next to her, from the Village Voice, we bring you everyone's favorite lesbian, Jill Johnston. And in this corner, 48 years old, weighing in at just under 200 pounds and coming out of Brooklyn, New York, a boxer, a filmmaker, a journalist, and America's most notorious writer, the champ himself, Norman Kingsley Mailer! Well, that's definitely not how the evening was presented, but it might as well have been. We're talking about what we now know as Town Bloody Hall, a loud, chaotic, and controversial affair held in New York City on April 30th, 1971, and billed as a dialogue on women's liberation. For some reason, some sexist reason, I suppose, instead of having a proper five-way debate, the discussion was to be moderated by Mailer, who was, of course, anything but moderate. The night began with a bang. There were protesters outside, accusing the speakers of betraying the poor by charging a $25 cover, today about 160 bucks, inflation adjusted. Then, barely a few minutes into the opening remarks of Jacqueline Ceballos, a seemingly drunken Gregory Corso, a long decade away from his bidnik stardom, stormed out screaming that women's liberation was wrong because it was only for half of humanity. Way to waste 25 bucks, Gregory. Next, Mailer introduced Greer. He is that uh, distinguished and um, young and formidable lady writer, Miss Germaine Greer from England. Aside from the condescending tone and language, Greer is Australian. After she spoke about the role of the artist in a patriarchal society, Jill Johnston took the podium and read a free-form poem on love and lesbian feminism, before Mailer cut her off and told her that her 10 minutes were up. That inspired most of the audience to heckle Mailer, while two women jumped on stage, hugging and kissing Johnston, until they all ended up in a puppy pile on the floor. By that point, Mailer had had enough. Hey, you know, it's great that you pay 25 bucks to see three dirty overalls on the floor when you can see lots of cock and cunt for four dollars just down the street. And when heckled. What's the matter, Mailer? You threatened because you found a woman you can't Hey, country, I've been threatened all my life, so take it easy. When Mailer's turn to pontificate finally arrived, he argued that 
the life of a man is also difficult, and that all the horrors that women go through, some of them absolutely determined by men, even more than I suspect determined by themselves, because we must face the simple fact that it may be there's a profound reservoir of cowardice in women which had them welcome this miserable slavish life. And then offered to... I will take out my modest little Jewish dick and put it on the table. You can all spit at it and laugh at it, and then I'll, and then I'll walk away and you'll find it was just a dildo I left there. I hadn't shown you the real one. And finally gave his uh, hot take on homosexuality. Which is every man is vulnerable to homosexuality because he cannot have it with a woman. He must go to a man to fundamentally feel like a woman to it. He must go to a man to have something up his anus or in his mouth. Not up mine, buddy. With women, the difficulty is that any man who's really a superb lover can be about 90% as good to a woman as a lesbian. Just doing the things that a lesbian does, and then he's got all the other stuff. Before opening the stage to questions. And that's when all hell broke loose. After replying to a question by Betty Friedan, Melo got heckled and lost it. Well, you ladies are very patronizing too. We're all stuck up snots. How's that? Susan Sontag attempted to bring some sanity back into the town hall and asked. Norman, it is true that women find, with the best of will, the way you talk to them patronizing. And uh, one of the things is your use of the word lady. When you, uh, and this is what I want to ask Diana, when you said Diana Trilling, foremost lady literary critic, I, if I were Diana, I wouldn't like to be introduced that way, and I would like to know how Diana feels about it. I don't like being called a lady writer, Norman. I know it, does, it seems like gallantry to you, but it, it doesn't feel right to us. It's a little better to be called a woman writer. I don't know why, but you know words count. We're all writers, we know that. But things eventually turned to Melo's anatomy and the way he'd referred to his own penis as the retaliator and that of his character as the avenger. If that's not enough male genitalia for you, worry not. Because for me, the highlight of the night was when Cynthia Ozick brilliantly mocked his convoluted cosmology and rhetorical style before asking. Mr. Mailer, in advertisements for myself, you said, quote, a good novelist can do without everything but the remnant of his balls. For years and years, I've been wondering, Mr. Mailer, when you dip your balls in ink, what color ink is it? <laughs> The darkest moment of the event came towards the end, when Mailer unleashed an infuriating argument that essentially justified violence against women, i.e. his own barely-veiled defense for stabbing Adele. When a man and a woman have a bitter, furious, violent quarrel, there comes a point if the man is stronger, as he usually is, not always, but usually, when he's either going to hit that woman or not. Now, if he hits the woman, he's lost the argument because finally he has blown up the premise of the argument. On the other hand, if a man swears to himself that he will never strike a woman, and he's dealing with a woman who has less honor than he does, which, believe me, ladies, is conceivable, when a man's engaged with a woman, when a man has sworn he will not strike a woman, and the woman knows that, and uses that, and uses it, and uses it, then she comes to a point where she's literally killing that man because the amount of violence that's being aroused in him is flooding his system and slowly killing him. So she's engaged at that point in an act of violence and murder, even though no blows are exchanged. To 
Just as Mailer's fucked-up behavior didn't slow down his literary career, neither did Jersey's harm his. In 1970, he published his third novel, Being There. It's a story of Chance, a man who grew up isolated from the world and raised by television. When, as an adult, he's forced to venture outside for the first time, a series of chance encounters propel him into the upper echelons of U.S. society, where he moves in with a rich old man, sort of seduces his wife, and even befriends the president. If that plot sounds familiar to a certain Polish novel that we discussed in episode 3, that's probably not a coincidence, but we'll get to that later. While in college, I watched some of Being There's 1979 film adaptation starring Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine. Sadly, I fell asleep after 20 minutes, but when I picked up the book almost 20 years later, I figured that with its reputation as one of Kaczynski's finest novels, I was in for some profound existential satire. Instead, I found a trite, fable-like story that aside from its interesting conceit, says very little. The alienation I was sure the book would explore is only scratched at, and my best summary of the novel is that it reads like the screenplay of a poor man's Forrest Gump. But I must have missed something, or it just didn't age well, because critics loved it, and actually compared Kaczynski to Beckett and Borges. By the time of Town Bloody Hall, The Painted Bird was already a modern classic, required reading at universities and even some high schools, and Steps had won the National Book Award in 1969. It beat out Exley's masterpiece of fans notes, and shared center stage with the nonfiction winner, Armies of the Night, by You Know Who. Now, with a third novel that was the talk of the literary town, Kaczynski had managed to find himself a titan of American letters. Soon, he'd be a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. The film being there would win numerous awards and achieve classic status, and Kaczynski himself would get a role in Warren Beatty's Oscar-winning film, Reds. The boy from Woods would regularly find himself in the company of historical figures, such as Frank Sinatra, Henry Kissinger, George Harrison, Svetlana Stalin, and Garry Kasparov, to name a few. In 1975, Kaczynski took Pope John Paul II, then Cardinal, on a tour of Manhattan. When they stopped at a newsstand and the future pontiff remarked about the abundance of porno mags, Kaczynski, top pervert, commiserated with him about how horrible they were. In 1982, he presented an award at the Oscars, and the New York Times wrote a magazine cover story about him, which ran with an Annie Leibovitz photo showing Kaczynski shirtless in polo gear with his orange artificial tan, whip, and S&M reference included. Not only was he a famous and powerful author, but he managed to transcend author fame and rise to the level of high society and pop celebrity. Like his character Chance and his pal Norman Mailer, Kaczynski had reached the very top. But for a man who really just played at being there, who lived as if he were there, and who didn't really write his own books, Jersey must have known it would all eventually come to an end. And by the early 80s, his Icarus-like trajectory had nowhere to go but down. If you want more Town Bloody Hole, you're in luck. Thanks to the great life-negating resource we call YouTube, you can watch the documentary footage of the evening in all its full bloody glory. And while you're there, 
be sure to click on that link on the right side. No, not the clickbait about the necrophiliac co-ed killer, no, the one beneath it. The Dick Cavett Show from December 1st, 1971. The Dick Cavett Show! It's vintage Mailer. Prior to the show, he got nice and sauced, and then, because his fellow guest Gore Vidal had criticized him for being a misogynist, Mailer headbutted him in the green room before going on stage. It must not have been much of a headbutt, though, because when they were sitting around Cavett's coffee table, Vidal looks fine. Mailer, though? Well, he's a bit worse for the wear. His hair's all ruffled, and he's nearly foaming at the mouth with rage as he bullies Cavett, the other guests, and the audience as well while pathetically boasting that he's the top writer in the US. In the end, the only thing he proves is that he's America's top buffoon. In the years to follow, he continued to do his best to lay claim to that title. Once, at a speech in Berkeley, he opened the evening by asking the feminists present in the room to hiss, and after they did, he chided. Obedient little bitches. He then infamously declared that a little bit of rape is good for a man's soul. Norman Mailer, who only a few years prior had been on top of the world, was now stupidly digging his own irrelevant grave. In the next and penultimate episode of season one of Penknife, we're going back to the Jack Henry Abbott affair to see what far-reaching consequences its fallout had on the careers of Norman Mailer and Jerzy Kuzinski. Till then, we leave you with a clip from The Dick Cavett Show. Now, I want to ask all of you something. Are you really all truly idiots, or is it me? Oh, that was the easy answer. Come on. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. And a big thanks to our main man, Josh W., our town bloody hall ring announcer. Check out his band, Your 33 Black Angels. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly. But to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening.
Fuck you, I want to teach you too.